You're listening to the Cathedral Podcast. To learn more about Cathedral, like service times or how to get connected with a small group, visit wearecathedral.com. Today's message comes from Dr. Glenn Schultz. Good morning. You ready to do church? You know, when you think about where we have been, what we're facing, the pastor has been addressing some issues the last couple of weeks uh, that elicit responses in many different ways. You know, some of the topics that he's been talking about, this wokeness, systemic racism, critical theory, and you say, well, mate, you know, I'm not into all that stuff, but let me throw a few other things up there. How about abortion? How about vaccinated or unvaccinated? How about government mandates? See, when we even mention those terms, it gets something going in us where we react either positively or negatively. And the reason why is because some of us have had certain personal experiences. Some of us have been taught certain things. All of us have been bombarded by narratives from the media. And what happens, these things that are very important, that are not just out there in the culture, they are in our homes. They have crept into the church and they have divided. And the problem is, there's so much emotion tied to it. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something that's hard. I'm going to ask you, whether you're in this room or you're watching live, I want you to set aside some emotions. And let's take and look at some subjects, some topics And understand that there's a bigger picture and there's maybe something else going on behind the scenes that we're not even aware of. And the only way you can do that is you have to look at it through the lens of this book, God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to go with me on a journey. And one of the things you've got to understand where we are and what's going on is to realize the importance of knowing the whole story. If someone were to come to you and say, wow, I I just read this book. It is the most fascinating book I have ever read. In fact, when I started reading it, 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 I was so engrossed in it, I couldn't put it down. I stayed up late at night until I finished it. And I want you to experience the same thing. So I want you to have this book. And you say, wow, I'd like to see what's so great about the book. So you read the first chapter. You go to the end, read the last chapter. And you say, oh, that's interesting, but it didn't capture me. Why? Because you didn't read the story. You didn't understand the whole story. And so you say, well, the beginning and the ending didn't make that much sense. So here, let me go and here's chapter 10. And you read chapter 10. And and you still don't see it all. In fact, by just reading chapter 10, you actually confuse the hero and the villain. And what you've got to understand is if you're really going to get something out of a book, you've got to start at the beginning and read all the way to the end. Well, it's fascinating. 
there's someone who's written a book who understands all of life. His name is God. He wrote the most amazing book that's ever been written. It is actually God-breathed. And what you've got to realize that if you just start and read the first chapter, what you're going to find out is that it begins in a garden with a marriage. Isn't that nice? And then you read the last chapter and you find out that it also ends in a city with a heavenly marriage. But when you go and realize that and say, that's great, I I love the way it started, I love the way it ends, but how do I make sense out of my life today? You've got to know the whole story. Now you can go and say, well, I'm just gonna read Isaiah. But if you just read Isaiah, you may get a picture of God that's not his full image. And you may see God as a mean God who brings captivity to people. So what I want you to understand, if you're going to understand these terms and what's going on and all that's taking place, you've got to know the whole story. And let's just look at it. We're not going to go through every bit of it, but I want you to see some things that God has shown me. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike shared a verse with us. And the verse is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And we read that and we just move on and we never think about what it's really saying. Who are these? What are these principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual host of wickedness? What, what do you mean the war is being waged up in the heavenlies? What does that mean? Well, we've got to go and realize where this war began. The war didn't begin here on earth. The war actually began in the heavens. There was this angel. He was an angel of light, it says. He was a shining bright force. The word that they've tied to him as this angel was Lucifer, even though it wasn't a formal name, but it represented him. Now, in God's created heavenly host, there were angels that were more important than others. Uh, There were the archangels. They were the top. But then right below the archangels were the cherubim, then the seraphim, then the regular angels. This one angel, this angel of light, was a cherub. He was high up. But what he ended up doing is he wasn't satisfied with his position. And he went and led a rebellion against God because this angel wanted to be God. And not only did he fall from heaven, but he took a third of the angelic host with him. And he 
was set and determined that he would be God. As a fallen angel, he was given a name, Satan, which means adversary, accuser. And that is the role that Satan has been playing ever since that dreadful day. He leads this band of demons that in scripture, Paul defines them as principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. And all along, what you've got to realize is that Satan still wants to be God. He is opposed to God and all of his plans. And he is going to wage war. And guess what? When you begin the story of mankind, you find that God created the heavens and the earth. You find that he put a capstone on this creation called a man. And, and he made them in two sexes, male and female. And, and he did that so that we could know the living God. We could worship him like we just did and give him glory. And what we've got to understand, the scriptures makes it clear that's why we're here. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1.20, paraphrase says, guess what? The invisible attributes of God I can know, I can understand by looking at what he made. I can know him, worship him, and give him glory. When God created this, he went and set up his first institution, the most important institution, the family. Not only did God ordain the family, but God went and defined the family. A family was a family when a man and a woman were married. And through marriage, which is defined by God, not by the Supreme Court, defined by God, it's a man and a woman comes together, and if God blesses them, they also have children. That's a family. That's the home. And what God designed was, that was supposed to be the only institution. Why? Because it was the home in relationship with God. And the home would build just societies, true societies. G.K. Chesterton said this about the home. The family isn't only an institution, but a foundation. The foundation of nearly all institutions. If you want to get the truth of the matter is, guess what? If there are no families, there are no institutions they will eventually die out. You've got to have the family. And guess what? Satan wants to attack what God created. So Satan shows up, he tempts man with two lies. These are the lies that we're tempted with today. The first lie is, you can't trust God's word. The second lie is simply, guess what? You can be your own God. That was not just an attack on man. 
it was also an attack on the home. This is when Satan's attack on the family, trying to destroy it, started. And what we find out is that Satan now took a battle that started in the heavenlies and he brought it to earth. So Paul is saying we're battling a heavenly battle, but it's manifested here on earth. You and I are right in the midst of the battle every single day. And this is what has happened. With the fall, sin entered the world, and Satan brought that cosmic battle between him and God to earth. The institution of the family became broken, but not forsaken. God never forsakes what he creates. I hope you take hope in that. God never forsakes what is broken. The family, however, could no longer be the only institution for a just society. And at this point in the story, God's second institution is created, the state. We would call it the government. Now, you may have all kinds of images and ideas about the government right now. But you've got to understand the state is an ordained institution by God. But it was there for a purpose. And if you read in Romans chapter 13, we don't have time to dig into it this morning. But in your spare time, when you get home, go look at Romans 13 and you will find out when God instituted the state, he had one purpose for the state. And the state was to punish evil and reward good. That's all. The state was supposed to be the protector, not just of individuals, but of the family, the home, so that we would have just nations. And, and with this, we find that God not only wants to bless homes, he now also wants to bless nations. It has been fascinating to read through scripture and see the, the love that God has for nations. I think of what is happening in many of the nations around the world. I think God's heart is broken because he loves the nations. In fact, he, he chose Abraham and he was going to make Abraham a great nation, but not so that Israel would be on the top of the totem pole. No, he chose Abraham to make it a great nation so that that nation could bless all nations. In fact, if you go into the New Testament, you will find out that the church has one mission. We'll talk about it a little bit later. It is to make disciples of all people. No, all nations. You go to the end of the book. You go to Revelation. And when the city of God comes down, and eternity is going to start, you find that the kings of the nations brought their glory into the city to worship God. Nations are very important to God. He has set it up for a purpose. But you know, good old Satan, he's going to target the state as he seeks to destroy that anything God establishes. So now we start seeing this battle unfurl. 
as we continue on, keep in mind that God gave Moses what is called the Decalogue, simply put, the Ten Commandments. And he didn't give it just to give his people something to think about. Number one, we've got to understand they are not the Ten Suggestions. That's how some of us are obeying them. No, these are Ten Commandments. These commandments, the law, is an actual reflection of the very character of a holy God. This is why we can never do any good works enough to earn heaven. Because we cannot keep this law. It's impossible for fallen man to do it. These Ten Commandments form a basic for my personal morality, for your personal morality. But the other reason why he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, is because it's supposed to be a basis for nations to build just societies. When you think of it, God says, you know what, I don't want man to stay in the condition he's in. So his plan of redemption comes into play. Now, now God, you've got to understand, is different from the world. God even says, I think it's in Isaiah, he says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You can't even compare to what I'm, I am and what I think. And his plan for redeeming a person who's lost in sin is totally opposite from the world and all false religions. See, false religions, all the pagan gods, they required that parents sacrifice their children to them. If you want to go and be in the good graces of the false gods, you had to go and sacrifice your children to these false gods. Moloch was one of them in the Old Testament. And he required that, you'll read in scripture where parents would pass their children through the fire. It meant they would go to worship Moloch and to try and be good, to be accepted in Moloch's eyes, they had to actually put their children in sacrificial fire. Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And that's where Jesus made that statement that his church, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And in Caesarea Philippi, there was this cave that they had actually called the gates of hell. And it's where parents would have to go and actually throw their children into this big empty hole inside this cave to satisfy the pagan god Pan. And so Jesus was saying, even the gates of hell, where, you're, where that requires your children to be sacrificed, won't stand against my church. And you say, wow, I'm glad we don't live in that type of room. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce says this, the sacrifice of one's children to demons is so terrible we can hardly imagine it. It is a sin caused by a combination of pagan religions of the most debased kind. But then he asked this question. But are we so sure that we never practice it ourselves? See, 
we're no longer trying to satisfy the pagan god of Moloch or Pan. We are trying to satisfy the pagan god of convenience, of, of climbing the corporate rat ladder, uh, of going and saying, I can't have a pregnancy and have a child because it will hurt my career, so I will abort it. I, I will take my children and let the world train them. I, I will let TV and the computer and the video games do it because I'm too busy. Montgomery Boyce finished by saying this. We actually do child sacrifice if we desire worldly success for our children to the point of thrusting them into a pagan environment today or encourage them to live like the world accommodating its morality just to get ahead. If you worship any of the gods of this world, whether wealth, fame, sex, or power, they will become a snare to your children. That's what false religions require. But God says, no, that's not what I'm going to require. In fact, I'm going to redeem man, not by requiring parents to give me their children. I am actually going to give my son to them. I am going to allow my son to go to the cross and shed his innocent blood to pay for the sin debt of every person under the sound of my voice today. God gave his son for us. That is the plan of redemption. And we've got to understand that. And with redemption, God unveils his third institution, the church. The church becomes another institution, so now we've got the home, we've got the state, and we've got the church. And these three institutions are supposed to unite together to make disciples of all nations and build just societies. That's what's supposed to happen. The church's mission is to make those disciples of all nations. But here's the thing. Satan's strategy is to attack all three of God's institutions. He's going to attack the home. He's going to attack the state. And he's going to attack the church. So when you look at that, just remember this. It says that Satan is a liar and he is the father of all lies. You do understand that, don't you? Where do, where do lies come from? From the very heart of Satan. <laughs> Every lie comes from him. He is the father of all lies. And he uses lies to enslave individuals and nations. Just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to them with lies. They believed his lies and they were captivated by sin. He comes to you, he comes to me on a daily basis through all kinds of avenues and throws lies at me and he wants me to accept them. He wants to deceive me, he wants to destroy me. When you look at Satan's plan and you look at his attack on the family, remember he wants to destroy the family. He doesn't want to just hurt it. He wants to destroy it. How did he do it? 
in my lifetime, I've seen it done through sexual revolution. Free love. The sanctity of that marriage relationship is broken. Divorce. We see the self-esteem and the self-actualization movements. Well, you say, well, I want my child to have a good self-esteem. But you know what? Self-esteem by the world's ideas is that a child should never think negative thoughts about himself or herself. Well, guess what? If I never think negative thoughts about myself, that means I can never do anything wrong. Therefore, I don't need a savior. I'm good. Mike and I were talking a couple days ago, and I, I told him when we were talking about this, I said, you know, I, I'm thankful I had a dad who didn't worry about hurting my self-esteem. <laughs> In fact, he hurt it quite a bit. And, and if one of my teachers called one of my parents and just hinted that I misbehaved, my parents didn't respond with, well, you don't understand Glenn. He's a good boy. It must be someone else. No, no, they would just simply say, we'll take care of it when we came home. Sometimes it was a month before I went home. <laughs> but self-esteem has started destroying the family. Self-actualization. You can be anything you want to be. You know, that's one of Satan's lies. What we should be telling our kids, you know what? You can be exactly how God designed you if you just surrender to him and let him use you. This idea, you can be anything you want. Or how about this? Oh, he's, a, he's really a good kid, just made a poor decision. No, he's a sinner who sins and needs a savior, needs to ask for forgiveness. See, we have, we have warped the whole concept of the family. And then sort of the last, you know, hinge pin that if it's pulled out completely, the family I think will collapse, is this whole gender confusion. So now gender confusion is there. But not only does he attack the family, he attacks the state. Satan, I believe, as I look at scripture, doesn't want to destroy the state. He wants to control the state. And how it happens is with the lie that the state will no longer just be your protector, it's now gonna be your provider. It's gonna give you everything you need. Were you looking forward to that stimulus check? Oh, that'll get me through this. I don't need God. The state's gonna take care of me. Ooh. And why does he want this to control the state? And why does he want the state to not only be the protector, but the provider? Because then the state becomes God. And he's moved God out of our lives. It's interesting that when the Antichrist comes into power, he's not going to do it through the family. It's been destroyed. He's not going to do it through the church. It's been weakened and taken out. He does it through the state. He rules over the entire world. Satan's attack on the church. See, he doesn't let anything go. Now, he knows he can't destroy the church because it's built on the rock of Jesus Christ. 
The church will always be here. It doesn't matter what happens in China in the underground church or what is happening right now with Christians in the underground church in Afghanistan. Guess what? (laughs) It's still his church. It's still alive and well. But uh, Satan wants to weaken it. And he weakens it, and we'll talk about this in another week, in two ways. First of all, liberal theology comes in. Where liberal theology means, well, this book is nice, and it even contains maybe some of God's word, but, but it, it, it's just a book. And we can take man's writings, and we can bring them in and combine them with God's word, and we can get a true understanding of how to live. That's liberal theology. And they also does it through what's called dualism. And in dualism, what happens is the fundamentalists, the people who said, boy, they're attacking the church. We're going to get together and stay true to the fundamentals of the faith out of Scripture. But you know what? We're going to protect the church on Sunday. And all of a sudden, life got compartmentalized into the secular and the sacred. And we focused on the sacred, the Sunday activities, the religious activities, and we forgot the rest of it. And therefore, we didn't make disciples of nations. Satan's attack has been vicious. And in light of all of those attacks, Paul, in his letter to the Colossian Christians, in chapter 2, verse 8, pens sort of the theme verse for this whole series. Beware, take guard. Don't let anybody cheat you. It means don't let anybody take you captive. Now, now if you've had the news on over the last month, you've seen people who are utterly terrified of being taken captive by a group of people called the Taliban. And we've seen them press into the gates, trying to get into an airport. We see them running alongside of an airplane that's trying to take off and even holding on to the landing gear so they don't be taken captive and falling from a thousand feet up in the air. But yet there is a greater captivity that is destroying us, that's destroying Homes, destroying churches, destroying the state. It's Satan's lies that have taken us captive. It's the human thinking in this verse. It's the tradition of men, the philosophies of man. And it says here, you're being taken captive by all of these false ideas and not being taken according to Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? How do I... How could I change and be taken captive according to Christ? Well, well, let's just, again, go to the Bible. What what did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth. Jesus is truth. So we could say that Paul is saying, don't be taken captive by the world's ideologies. Be taken captive by truth. In John 1.1, we find these words. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word came and dwelt amongst men. The word is referring to Jesus Christ. 
So, so what Paul is saying, be taken captive by the word. Because that's where truth is. This is according to Christ. And we don't know the word, so how can we be taken captive by it? But guess what? We do know all of the ins and outs of the philosophies that are bombarding us from the world. And that's what's dividing us. That's what led Pastor Mike to do this series. Because he saw this is what was taking place in our lives. And here's the thing to keep in mind. Lies always enslave. When you think of how we got here, whoops, excuse me, I just. When you think of how we got here, remember that the battle, and please keep this in mind for the next few weeks. In fact, you should keep it in mind for all of your lives. That there is a heavenly battle, a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And it's between God's truth claims that he gives us, and Satan's lies. If we follow Satan's lies, it's always going to put us into captivity. See, that's what happened in the garden. God said, his truth claim was, you can eat of everything but that tree. Don't do it. You will die. Satan's lie was, you won't die. You'll be God. And they bought the lie. And they're in captivity. And because of that, you and I are born into captivity. See, ideas, or these, you know, man's ideologies, worldviews, it shapes culture. And we've got to understand, how, how do these ideas spread? How, how do they get into our homes and into our lives and into our schools, and how does it happen? Well, the spread of ideas, in a general sense, go in three ways. First of all, ideas spread geographically around the world. If you look at things like the Reformation, Enlightenment, guess what? They started in Europe, then they moved to America. False ideas will spread geographically around the world. It's interesting. God's truth is supposed to spread the same way. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Then you're going to take it to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. You're supposed to take truth around the world. Unfortunately, we've allowed man's ideologies to go around the world, and the truth hasn't. Ideas spread through time from one generation to another. There was a woman who, she had the reputation of preparing the best roast you could ever have. People just raved at her roast. And there was a woman with her uh, one day when she was preparing her roast because she wanted to see her secret. And she noticed that she cut the ends of the roast off before she put it in the oven. And, and this lady said, why are you cutting the ends off? And she looked at her and she says, well, you know, I've never thought about that. That's the way my mother did it. So, so they went to her mother and they said, 
why when you fix roast, do you cut the ends off? And the mother looked at him and said, well, you know, grandma always did it that way. So they went to grandma's house and they say, grandma, mom says that every time you baked a roast, you cut the ends off. Why did you do that? And she said, my pan was too short. Now, now, here's what I want you to understand. You and I, we are believing things and doing things that has been passed down from generation to generation, and we never try to examine to see why we do it. And when you live an unexamined life, you may have been captivated by lies. The third way, and that's the last one we're going to look at here, is ideas spread vertically down through culture. And this is what has happened over many, many decades here in our land. When you think of this spread vertically, you've got to realize that it usually starts with the intellectuals. These are the philosophers, those who sit up in ivory towers and ask questions about life and then try to come up with human answers to those questions. Here in the South, it's on a Saturday morning about 8 o'clock when old men in their pickup trucks go into Hardee's. And we sit there and try to solve all the world's problems. Well, the intellectuals do that. And the intellectuals start coming up with philosophies. Back in the 50s and 60s, out of the public's eye, some intellectuals started debating gay and homosexual lifestyle. And they started trying to put it together where maybe that's how people are born. It, it's not sin. Uh, maybe it's a psychological disorder. Maybe it's just the way they are. Maybe it's genetics. And, and they started formulating some ideas. And then what happens is the first people that attach to those ideas are the artists. They, they, are, they are those who write books, write songs, develop films, and they start putting these ideas out through this pop culture media. In 1978, a song came out. I wonder if any of you have ever heard this song. It's fun to stay at the YMCA. It's fun to stay at the YMCA. The YMCA. The village people. They named their group after Greenwich Village, which was known as a gay neighborhood in New York City. These men had different costumes on. That, that basically depicted the macho man of the gay community. And, and the YMCA is where young boys need to go. If you've ever listened to the lyrics, you know, I said, young man, pick yourself off the ground because you're in a new town. No need to be unhappy. There's a place you can go when you're short on your dough, and I'm sure you will find many ways to have a good time. They have everything for young men to enjoy. You can hang out with all the boys. 
You can do whatever you feel. Young man, are you listening to me? I said, young man, what do you want to be? But you got to do one thing. No man does it by himself. I said, young man, put your pride on the shelf and just go there to the Y, MCA, where several decades ago, that's where homosexual men would go and find their next victim. See, what happens, it, it gets picked up, and, and then in the 80s came Will and Grace, then the Ellen Show, and, and then it was part of the popular culture. And then those lies, once they're picked up by the artist, let me just give you a quote by Stone Street and Kunkel in their book, A Practical Guide to Culture. Every song, movie, tweet, sermon, news story, podcast, banner ad, and billboard tells us something about what to believe and how to live. And they went on to say, it would be nice if ideas stayed in their books that the artists are writing. But they grow legs, they walk off the page, they head out into the world, they influence the way we think and live, they shape entire societies and drive the course of human history. We have sat by and watched this happen, and it's destroying our homes, our state, and the church. And once the artists make it popular culture, then the professionals move in. The school teachers, the judges, the lawyers, the politicians, and they take those ideas and they institutionalize them into laws and edicts that actually control our daily lives. See, culture, ideas shape culture. Culture, you've got to understand, is always upstream from politics and ec ec economics. Once an ideology gets into the pol politic area, it's already got a hold on society. And what you've got to realize is that it is a reflection of the God or gods that we're worshiping. If you go out and look at our culture today, you look at these ideologies that are tearing us apart, they're a reflection of the gods that we're worshiping. And we've got to realize that culture forms the framework that defines our social, our educational, our economic, our political, and our legal institutions. So how do we find hope in all this chaos? We're going to take some of these ideologies next week and we're going to really track them so you understand where they came from. But keep in mind the battle. And you may be thinking, oh, we've got to change the home. We've got to change the state, the government. We've got to change the church. Before you can do that, God's got to change me. God's got to change you. It all starts with us as individuals. A home will never be put right if the parents aren't changed. 
we'll never be able to write or at least shape the culture if we as individuals aren't walking in righteousness. We must understand the war. The war is not on color of skin. It's not on gender. It is a war of Satan against God himself. And he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy me. If he can divide us, then he can destroy us. And we can't let that happen. Francis Schaeffer makes this quote. It is not too strong to say that we are at war. There are no neutral parties in the struggle. One either confesses that God is the final authority or one confesses that Caesar is Lord. I don't know your hearts today, but I would say in a room this size, there's at least one, maybe two, maybe 10, maybe 20, who you've never repented of your sins and accepted God's free gift of salvation as payment for your sin debt. You do not have a relationship with God. You are separated from him. And that means you must be bound by the lies of Satan and sin holds you in its grasp. What a great day it would be if that's you today that you would go and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I repent. I turn from my sin and I turn from you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I accept the finished work of Christ on the cross as payment for that sin debt. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Simple prayer like that. The Bible says, God saves. But for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that have repented of our sins, how many of Satan's lies have gotten a hold of us? Are we willing to repent of our sin? Are we willing to repent of chasing after the false pagan God of convenience? Are we going to repent of our sin of addiction when, when you're by yourself, you turn that computer on at night? What are we going to do as individuals to save our homes, save our state, strengthen and revive his church? Yes, it begins with individuals. We understand the war. We must repent of our sin, of being taken captive by false ideas. We must renew our minds by becoming men and women of this book. Jesus said in John 8, that if you continue in my word, and what that means is if you take up residence and live in my word, then you're a disciple of mine and you will know real truth and you'll be set free. You will not know real truth and be set free from these false ideas and this captivity of Satan's lies if you just know part of the book. You gotta live in this every day. This should not be something you run into on Sunday morning at church. It should be straight in your face from the time you 
wake up until you lay down at night. That's the only thing that's going to free us. I leave you with a quote by Martin Luther. He says, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I am walking in his way and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. May we be people like Martin Luther. Would you pray with me? Father, I I confess that I just don't know your word like I should. Father, oh, forgive us. Have mercy on us, God, that we would allow ourselves to be divided based on the color of one's skin. That that we would allow ourselves to just entertain these false ideas that come from the heart of Satan. Lord, they sound so good, but when we don't know the word, we'll fall for anything. Lord, our country is hurting. Our homes are hurting. Churches are weakened. Oh God, have mercy on us. Revive us. Restore us. But don't let me look at other people. Let me begin by looking at my life. And I want you to restore the joy of my salvation. Lord, revive my heart. Return me to my first love. And give me wisdom to know how to walk by faith in your word. I ask this not for my sake, but for your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship? You've been listening to the Cathedral Podcast. If you were encouraged by today's message, leave us a rating and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions about today's message or just want to reach out, send an email to questions at cathedralemail.com. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Have a blessed week.